Our reading today is Luke 21, verses 25 to 33. In the Blue Pew Bible, you can find this on page 881. Luke 21, 25 to 33. And there will be signs in sun and moon and stars and on the earth, distress of nations in perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves, people fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. And he told them a parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they come out in leaf, you see for yourselves and know that the summer is already near. So also when you see these things taking place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. My name is Brett Sweet. I'm going to need my notes a lot. Apparently, I need them to know what my name is. My name is Brett Sweet. I'm one of the pastors here at Grace Christian Fellowship Central, where we exist to glorify God. That's why we're here. It's about God, not us. We do that through gospel-centered means focusing on Jesus in every way possible, gospel-centered worship, evangelism, discipleship, and community. We're in a series through the book of Luke. We find ourselves now under God's infinite wisdom at this passage from Luke 21. Challenging passage, uh, controversial passage, confusing passage sometimes. So I'm going to pray and ask God to help, and he's going to do that. He's going to help us this morning. So let's pray. Lord, we're thankful for your promises. We're thankful that because of Jesus Christ, we can be confident that you are for us and not against us. That there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. That no matter what we've encountered this week, that your word is true and your spirit is here. So, Lord, I pray that you would settle us here. You would calm us. Help us to listen well. Lord, I confess that I am not anything. I am nothing, and yet I want to offer myself up to be useful to these people whom you love this morning. Help us, we pray, to listen well, to find application, and to look to the future with hope. In Jesus' name, amen. Smartphones have changed things so much. I understand that now there are actually apps where you can go to a foreign country and just take pictures or maybe just pull out your phone with the camera on and it will actually interpret signs in other languages for you. Now, I find that interesting because uh, the TV show The Amazing Race, when it came out, the whole premise was how would these people survive in another culture? How would they find their way around the world when they couldn't read the signs? couldn't interpret the signs. I assume they're not allowed to use smartphones on that show now. I don't know. But now imagine you're in another country and you think you're driving past a pet store only to realize the guinea pigs you see are on the menu 
or you are in desperate need of a prescription and you drive past sign after sign that says chemist and you don't stop because you don't need a cleaning solution. You need to interpret the signs. If you don't, you may live to regret it or maybe die regretting it. We are in Luke's most difficult passage to interpret. I found it to be the most disagreed upon. It began with Jesus announcing the destruction of the temple. And it was followed, he announces that, and is followed by two questions from his disciples. Now what's interesting is that when uh, rivals question Jesus, he will sometimes dodge the question and respond with the question. But when disciples ask him, He answers directly. So asking about the destruction of the temple, he's asked two things in Luke. When will these things be and what will be the signs? When will these things be and what will be the signs? Last week we looked at the timing. When will these things be and Jesus' answer. And now we're going to look at what will be the signs. And Jesus is telling us to interpret the signs. That's the big idea, interpret the signs. Get them right, interpret the signs. As we think about interpreting the signs, we're going to put four practices for interpreting the signs in front of us, four practices. The first practice will be we need to interpret the signs according to the immediate context, to the text that's right in front of us, the immediate context. But then practice number two, we need to look at the wider context, the wider context of the whole Bible and salvation history. Then third, we need to interpret the signs with hope, hope, and then fourth, with faith, with faith. So practice number one in interpreting the signs. Interpret the signs according to the immediate context. Many people go wrong right here. Some of us come with so much baggage that we miss what's right in front of us. What does the Bible say in these verses? What would the original audience think about them? So let's look at the context. Look up at verses 5 through 7. And while some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, he said, As for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And they asked him, Teacher, When will these things be? And what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? So the immediate context is talking about the destruction of this temple with these stones that Jesus is looking at. So that is the immediate context. But now stick with me. Luke gives us a little hint and he uses that word signs. Start reading in verse 25 with me, and we'll read through verse 32. And there will be signs in sun and moon and stars, and on the earth, distress of nations in perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves, people fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now, when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. Verse 29, then he told them a parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they come out in leaf, 
You see for yourselves and know that the summer is already near. So also when you see these things taking place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. So again, the immediate context really matters. In English, we can say things that have meanings in other languages. We can use the word kiss in English. We know what that means. If you use that word kiss in Sweden, kids, it means you have to go number one in the toilet. Or if you go to Germany and go to a shop that sells gifts, guess what gift means in Germany? Poison. So the immediate context makes a huge difference. The immediate context here is addressed to people in the first century looking forward, not the 21st century looking forward. And so we're going to get a little bit technical this morning. We're going to get into some Greek words this morning. I don't usually like to bring the pots and pans out of the kitchen. We've got to do it a little bit this morning when we eat this meal. So I want us to notice verse 32. There Jesus talks about this generation, Ganea in the Greek. We, as we think about this, I did a fair bit of research. I started tracing that word throughout all of Luke's writing. Ganea almost always, pretty much without exception, maybe one or two exceptions in Luke, always means the generation that's right here around us. So the people Jesus looks out on and sees physically around him, saying, this generation. And so that's how Luke usually uses this term. And so in the immediate context, he's talking to these people. This generation, look for these signs. But what about these signs? In verses 25 through 27, they seem like the end of the world for us. I mean, look at them. Signs and sun and moon and stars, distress and nations. The, the sea is roaring. There's waves. People fainting with fear. What do we do with that? Well, what's important to recognize, again, this generation would look around and they would have a biblical background. So let me read some context, so in immediate context that use similar heavenly language. Isaiah 13, 9 through 10, through 10 Tevin, new, new word there. Isaiah 13, 9 through 10, where there are all kinds of heavenly signs in the stars, sun, moon, and, and stars. And he's speaking about God's judgment on Babylon, something that was happening in history. In Ezekiel 32, 7 and 8, and verse 15, God is judging Egypt for the evil that they've recently committed against his people. God talks about blotting out the heavens so that no light is seen from the sun, moon, and stars and striking down every Egyptian. In Isaiah 34, 4 through 5, God speaks about all the host of heaven falling like leaves from a tree, from a fig tree, actually. He talks about the sky being rolled up like a scroll. But the immediate context there is judgment on Edom for how they handled Israel's conquest looking at their cousins and brothers and just standing by and rejoicing. 
God's talking using this sort of language for those specific historical events. So it's important to understand in a biblical worldview that when we hear some of the sun, moon, stars language, that in the behind that, the readers are always thinking this is indicative of something supernatural, some sort of war happening behind the scenes. There's more to it. There's a sign here. And so Jesus' hearers are not raised in an atheistic, naturalistic culture like ours. So when they think about sun, moon, and stars, they're thinking there's life out there behind that. It's not just like physical rocks burning up in space or reflecting things in space. They're thinking about things in the spiritual realm. And this has to be kept in mind in the immediate context. And the immediate context tells us something else. Son of man coming in a cloud. Now it's possible, it's possible if you go back to the reference in Daniel 7, that the son of man coming is not actually coming to earth. In Daniel 7, the coming is a coming into God, the father, the ancient of days presence. So perhaps, because actually the coming word there in Greek is not the usual one for the return of Christ, which is parousia. This is erkomenon, which can mean actually go. It's possible that all of this chaos, all these signs Jesus is talking about here occurred when the temple was destroyed in 70 AD. It's possible. And it's meant to, if that's the case, he's reminding us that Jesus is on his throne. He's ruling all things. No matter what's happening out there, you can look up and say, you know what, this is just another reminder. Jesus is where he belongs. The, Jesus is ruling and reigning. So when we think about interpreting the signs of Jesus' final return, we should make sure that we keep as close to the original audience as possible. And so many of us have been taught to interpret these things in our context. And maybe the original audience would say, that makes no sense to us. That's not really what we would understand Jesus to be saying. That seems unlikely. So we need to interpret the signs according to the immediate context. But now let's notice another practice for interpreting the signs. Practice number two. Practice number two, interpret the signs according to the wider context. Interpret the signs according to the wider context. So we've talked about the immediate context from the text right in front of us, but we need to keep the whole Bible here in front of us and interpret the signs according to the wider context. Imagine for a second, you're like me, you've always wanted a house along a river. You saved up, you shopped around, you finally find the best you can get, and you're 150 yards from the river. You can kind of just barely see it out there, and there's houses between you. But then one spring day after a whole lot of snow melt and a whole lot of heavy rain, you walk onto your front porch and there's a duck swimming in front of you. Finally, you've got your riverfront property. Flood has rerouted the river and you're sitting there thinking, finally, my dream has come true. You're looking at the immediate context, but then you widen your gaze and you realize there's people on houses crying for help and helicopters trying to rescue them. There's trees being used as battering rams, destroying things. Cows struggling to swim their way through water. I don't care much about cows, but anyhow, they would be struggling. In the same way, in the same way, the wider context here 
has to be used to interpret the signs. We dig too much into the immediate and forget to widen our gaze, we might go wrong. And so I want us to think about this in verse 27. Let's read verse 27. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. I am very inclined to believe that what we are hearing about is emphasized in the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. But I think that that is meant to foreshadow the end of history. I think it foreshadows the end of history. I think that the parallel in Matthew, if you read the parallel account in Matthew 24, Matthew is asked three questions. When will these things be? Same as Luke. What will be the signs? Same as Luke. And what about the end of the age? And Jesus kind of answers the same way. So it's, a, it's possible that Jesus is compressing two things so that they appear as one. Could you show me this, the picture, please, Grace? So is that one windmill or is that many? That'd be cool if there's a windmill like that. But when we look at it here, it looks like there's one. There's just one. Because it's lined up. They seem so close. But we recognize that if we were to zoom out or look at it from a different angle, there's multiple windmills at work there. That same sort of thing happens biblically with prophecy. That's why, that's why John the Baptist was like, Jesus, dude, I'm in jail. You going to conquer these guys and get me out of here or what? Because he's, he's compressed the first and second comings of Jesus. And the Old Testament prophets do that a little bit. And I think Jesus is doing that here too. So I think the wider context means we do have some prophecy about the end of the age. Thank you, Grace. For me, when Jesus says they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud, the wider context of the Bible is talking about earth history, salvation history, and it reminds us, reminds us that what's coming, what the future holds, is a sudden, visible, personal, bodily return of Jesus Christ at the end of history. When there is chaos, when there's a panic, when there's fear of the future, people are fainting, verses 25 through 26, we can have confidence in the wider context of the Bible Guess what? The signs mean Jesus is coming again. He's going to come again. Jesus is going to return. Now, some people have zoomed in so much on the immediate context that they would say, uh, you know, generation, it means this generation talks about a return. It must mean that Jesus did come in 70 A.D., it was kind of invisible, uh, and, and therefore we're faithful to the Bible. So Jesus isn't going to return again. That is called, that's a view called the preterist, full preterist or hyper preterist position. And I would go so far as to call that heresy. It is not a position that Bible-believing Christians can hold. The sudden, visible, personal, bodily return of Christ is so important that it's worth dying for. 
Now, why would you ask that? Why would I say it's worth dying for? Because I can't die without it. If Jesus isn't coming back, we've got no hope. The new heavens and the new earth, they're, they're, they're a lie. But the good news is, he is coming back. And this is always considered a source of hope and joy for Christians. So Jesus' return will be visible to every eye when he comes again. So the idea that he's come back and we might, we might have missed it, it's not possible. It's literally not possible. Everyone in earth's history will see Jesus' return. This is the testimony, if you want to take notes, of John 14.3, of Acts 1.11 of 1 Thessalonians 4.16, of Hebrews 9.28, of James 5.8, of 2 Peter 3.10, of 1 John 3.2, of Revelation 22.20. I'm not going to repeat those. You can look at my notes later. If I was in a classroom, I'd repeat them. But listen also to Revelation 1.7, talking about the wider context written after 70 AD. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him. Even those who pierced him in all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. Now that verse really challenges us, doesn't it? It's hard for a, lo us, a lot of us to hear that. All of the tribes of earth will wail? on account of him? If Jesus is coming with the clouds so that everyone sees him, we're talking about a level of power that's unprecedented. No human has ever had this sort of power. It's, he has the power to raise the dead. And people wail. Now, if you're not a Christian, let me state the obvious here, that you're already thinking probably. This is terrifying. This is really terrifying. And you should be terrified. You'll be meeting an almighty God. You'll be under his judgment. It forces us to talk about things we don't like to talk about in pleasant company. Wrath. Hell. Judgment. And that's aimed at you. Whatever you think your biggest problems are now, your looks, your mortgage payment, why your kids won't eat their dinner, your relationships with others, whatever else, that is going to disappear from your mind. But maybe you think, you know what, I'm not that big of a sinner. You know, I've never murdered anyone. I mean, yeah, sure, I've been envious and jealous and you know, angry at them. Yeah, I've done that. That's just a little thing though, right? Or, you know, I, I've never committed adultery, just, just lust, just gossip. I haven't stolen anything. I just wished I could and get away with it. But let me show you, and I'm helped here by a Puritan, how your little sins are actually great sins. Imagine someone came up to you and said, you know, uh, I want you to betray your spouse or betray your country. 
commit adultery or treason. And guess what? I can guarantee you, you'll never get caught. You're safe. How much would I need to pay you for you to take me up on that offer? $100 billion? A billion dollars? A million dollars? A thousand dollars? One dollar? We would agree that the bigger temptation, a billion dollars, that's a harder temptation, isn't it? Much harder. Nobody will ever know. I can get away with it. My whole life will be changed. I could give money to charity, spend my life making up for it. But if we were to betray our spouse for a dollar, as opposed to a hundred billion dollars, which one would she say was the bigger sin? And yet, we give in to little temptations, often not the big ones. We give in to the little ones. We betray the God of the universe, infinitely valuable, for little things. We would commit murder not because those people murdered our family, but because someone stole our corn nuts or Doritos. That doesn't seem just. It's a little temptation. Little temptation maybe bigger sin. Now, I'm not here to talk about whether anger is worse than murder. Jesus says it's the same sin in the heart. What I'm here to tell you is every sin is giant. Every sin is serious. Every sin is deadly. And we need a Savior. We need a Savior. And if the Son of Man is coming in a cloud with power and glory to judge and we are in our sins, we are in trouble. Interpret the signs. Interpret the signs according to the immediate context and according to the wider context of future judgment. The immediate context was probably 70 AD, and now there's good news in here too. Practice number three, interpret the signs with hope. Interpret the signs with hope. Look at verse 28. Now, when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. We've just thought about a little bit what it'd be like to be found outside of Christ when he returns. We recognize we would cower and hide and be afraid, and that's exactly what the Bible says. People calling, you know what, I'd rather have a mountain fall on me than be handed over to Jesus in my sins. But there's another group of people that Jesus says, you see this stuff happening? Stand up straight. Lift your gaze a little bit. Smile. Your redemption is coming. When everybody sees this, your redemption, the fullness of it is drawing near. That's the reason why we can interpret the signs with hope. Because Jesus, who's here talking in these pages, came the first time came first. We're here all about the gospel. What we really care about is who Jesus is and what he's done. And what Jesus did the first time he came is take all the wrath of God that all of his people deserve. There was a big pile of it everywhere with Brett Sweet's name on it and your name on it and your friend's name on it and your loved one's name on it. Huge giant piles. And Jesus says, I'll take it. I'll take that and all receive the wrath of God in your place. And that's what God the Father pours out on God the Son. He says, I love 
my son and I love, his, I love these people. So Jesus, I'm sending you and Jesus says, I'm going, Father, happy to go. And dies and dies for all those great sins that we've committed. Removing wrath, removing that infinite pile of sin and punishment. Jesus says, it's my own. I'll take it. Because Jesus came the first time, he's for us and not against us. So Christ's return is a place and reason for hope and rejoicing. It's a reason to look up, say like, man, the world is nuts. Rockets in Gaza, rockets in Israel, Russians invading Ukraine, uh, an eclipse in Spokane. Wow, this is nuts. Straighten up. Maybe your redemption is drawing near. Jesus' return will be a picture not of judgment for his people, but of a picture of fullness of love and of welcome, freedom from fear. See, there's a tendency for us to hear people talking about interpreting signs with Jesus' return among Christians, and they're terrified. They're scared, stress, worry, anxious. But Jesus says, hope. You see these things interpreted the way the original audience would have, whatever those signs might be? Have hope. Straighten up. Your redemption is near. And by near, that means really the next thing on God's to-do list. It's near. His return will bring the fullness of our redemption. If he's really paid our price, we're free. You're free. Some of you need to hear that. You're free. He's satisfied your punishment. You don't need to punish yourself. You're free. He's for you, not against you. You're free. The payment has been paid. No more debt for you. Let it go. You're free. When Jesus returns for his people, we can be confident we'll receive only good from him. Only good. But if we're opposed to him, he will be opposed to us. So what we need to do is oppose our sin. We'll trust in Jesus. Say, Jesus, it's got to be you. I look inside and those little temptations I give into mean that there's big sins. So I'm going to turn away from those and I'm going to trust you. And if we're doing that, that's evidence that we are trusting Christ. And he's going to carry us through death and suffering. So maybe you hear about certain court cases or trouble in the Middle East or social movements or national debt. You have concerns. The Bible is really clear that we're living in the last days. Now, how long those last days are? They've been going for close to 2,000 years. We're still in them. For Christians, we have hope. Jesus is not coming to punish you. He's coming to free you, to reward you, to bring you the full meaning of comfort and peace. All the things that you're thinking, boy, if I could just get out from under this, this pressure, this pain, Jesus is coming. Your body will be rebuilt and reformed. Your mind and soul will be at rest. 
Jesus' return is a reason for hope and joy, not fear and anxiety. Now, I want us, some of you are like, but, but Pastor Brett, I want to know what the signs are. What are they? Really hard question. Let me tell you what the signs aren't. End of the world. Signs that it's not the end of the world. Your boyfriend broke up with you. Mom and dad grounded me. Not a sign of the end of the world. You lost your job. Not a sign of the end of the world. It's hard to get along with my spouse. Not the end of the world. Your car broke down. You don't know how you're going to pay for it. Not the end of the world. Going without a hot water tank for a week. Not the end of the world. Christians in America, listen, the things you worry about are usually not a sign of the end of the world. But there are signs. We need to interpret the signs. We need to interpret them according to the immediate context and the wider context. We need to interpret them with hope. And lastly, practice number four, interpret the signs with faith. With faith. So we're moving into winter. We look out and the leaves are falling. But barring Jesus' return, he puts a little delay on that for a few months, barring any sort of natural disaster, what we will see in the spring will be brown trees and then all of a sudden, on the tip of those brown branches, a little green bud. And we won't go, you know, like, I wonder if summer's coming. We'll know it. We'll know it. Oh, yeah, there's, the leaves are growing. Summer is coming. That's what Jesus looks at here to interpret the signs. This is where I think a lot of people go wrong. We get so into the weeds trying to interpret the signs, we don't recognize that everybody's going to know it. Everyone's going to know it. It's going to be obvious, the fig tree parable says. You're going to know it. Look at verse, and we can, so we can interpret the signs with faith. Look at verse 33. Verse 33. Heaven and earth will pass away but my words will not pass away. Now this is a remarkable thing for Jesus to say. Whether, when Jesus' return comes, whether you're premillennial, amillennial, postmillennial, or panmillennial, meaning however it pans out, or a mixture of all the above, the sky above the earth will go through some sort of purifying fire, changing them forever. And listen to Isaiah 51.6. Lift up your eyes to the heavens and look at the earth beneath. For the heavens vanish like smoke and earth will wear out like a garment. And they who dwell in it will die in like manner. But my salvation will be forever and my righteousness will never be dismayed. The return of Christ, everything rebuilt to something more glorious more beautiful. So think about the most beautiful sight you've ever seen in creation. Mountains for me, oceans for some of you, beaches, rivers. It will be even better. You think, man, how could this get any better? It will. It will. 
And why can we be sure of that? Why can we have faith? Not because of how good we are at interpreting the signs, but because Jesus' word. That's why we can have faith. Jesus' word could be trusted. He makes claims that his words will last forever. And now that's been said elsewhere. Isaiah 40, verse 8. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Jesus is saying, everything else can get burned, but guess what will last? My word. My word. What I say, you can trust it. You can have faith. And by saying that, he's saying, you're wondering who I am? I'm God. You're wondering if you can trust me. God says my word lasts forever. I say my word lasts forever. You can trust me. You can trust me. Aren't you looking for someone to trust? Aren't you? Do you have your preferred preachers, newscasters, podcasters? Do you have your friends and your family? But there are times where you wonder if you can really trust them. You started dating and you believed everything that came out of her mouth. Now, 20 years in, and she says, no, I didn't. I'm not the one who broke that plate. And you're like, well, I don't know. And yet she's the one you trust more than anyone else. And all this media stuff comes out and you say, can we trust them? Boy, I don't know, because this media over here is saying something different. Don't, aren't you looking for someone to trust? Do they really see the whole picture? Do they really know what's happening, going to happen in the future? Jesus does. Jesus does, so you can trust him. Now, this is amazing because there is no record, none, in the early church. So the early church, in the New Testament, heavy persecution and the really the century and a half or so that follows, waves of persecution, intense. Christians looking like, oh man, Jesus says he's coming soon. Come on, Jesus. Come on, Jesus. Come on, we're looking for you. Here's the remarkable thing. There was never any crisis of faith. Never. They always said, you know what? We can trust Jesus. Maybe we will get thrown to the lions. Maybe when the Goths come into Rome, maybe they will kill all of us. But Jesus can be trusted. We have faith. He'll come again. He'll come again. But some of us want to master the future. Now, here's something remarkable. We want to look at these signs, and we want to look at the news headline and say, there it is. Now, here's something really remarkable I was thinking about this week. There's not much Christians, all Christians throughout all of history have in common. Eastern Orthodox, Protestant, Roman Catholic, Calvinists, Arminians, uh, Presbyterians, Baptists. But you know what they all have in common so far? 100% of them, 100%, all wrong when they've said this is when Jesus is coming. 100%. All wrong. So 
So our certainty, so how can we have confidence when we interpret the signs? We have confidence by having certainty in Jesus' words, not our ability to interpret the signs. So some of you want me to tell you specifically if the signs we are reading about in Luke 21 apply to us now. Will we see these sorts of signs when Jesus comes back a second time? If we interpret them properly, meaning that we understand them the way the original audience would be, then I think the answer is yes. I think so. I think when, before Jesus comes, there's going to be like, wow, like things have really picked up here, haven't they? Things are really crazy here. But I think that uh, Revelation, the book is, is kind of historical. It's not, it's not necessarily just in the future. And so there's kind of a context going on here. Uh, the, the end of Revelation is definitely future, by the way. Um, but specifically, when Jesus comes, it's going to be like identifying the leaves. There it is, undeniable. Jesus is coming. Every eye will see him. We'll see him. So it's not the hemming and hawing. In my lifetime, and just previous to my lifetime, here's all the sorts of signs people have read into. Russia's invasion of Afghanistan. Not anymore. Ronald Reagan, the Antichrist. Ronald Reagan's dead now. Uh, Lebanon's bombing of Israel. Early 1990s. Troubles in Ireland. Uh, let's see here. Oh, uh, Iran becoming a Muslim fundamentalist, fundamentalist state. All of these things interpreted like, here we are, next couple of years. 100% wrong so far. 100%. Now, might they be signs saying that the wheels are starting to turn? They might be. We might just need to be a little bit more cautious in our predictions. And our confidence needs to be in Jesus' words. Not that this thing over here is definitely means nuclear war. This thing over here definitely means helicopters. So what is the hope? The main application, actually, for all this is coming in next week's sermon. I saved it for Dave Nelson. <laughs> we wait and we hope. And we be ready. But I want us to zoom out for a moment and think about Luke 21 5 through 32, and here's what I take away. Every Christian should be excited for these things to take place. Every Christian. Here's what it's going to be like when Jesus returns. There's going to be some little child in Asia whose parents have secretly taught him the gospel, and he doesn't know he can trust. And he's wondering if this is all worth it, but he's following Jesus, and he says, boy, I don't know what's going to happen. And then the leaves on the fig trees will be there and Jesus come in. That little boy's going to be like, I knew it. I knew I could trust Jesus. I knew this was right. And there's going to be some old man lying on his deathbed and everybody says, oh, tomorrow's going to be the last day for him. He's not going to make it. And then people are going to be like, something crazy is happening. And that old man isn't going to see death. He's going to be like, I knew it. I knew I could trust Jesus. I knew he was the one. And there's going to be you or me, or our grandchildren, or whatever, whenever the, the time comes. And they're going to be sitting there thinking, this life is so hard. 
I, I, I want to trust Jesus. My, my family has taught me well. I know Jesus is more valuable than anything, but, but is it right? And then he's going to look up, he's going to straighten his back, and he's going to be like, this is it. I knew it. I knew it. I knew Jesus was the one. That's what's coming. It might be in our lifetime. It might not be. Let's pray. Lord, we're thankful that Jesus' word could be trusted. We're thankful that there are signs. And we're thankful, Lord, that the time will come when it will be obvious. We pray that we would interpret them accurately. We pray that we would be encouraged and full of faith and full of hope and that fear would be banished from God's people. And Lord, we rejoice that our only hope is in Jesus' return because he's come the first time. So help us. Help us, we pray. Lord, we pray that every single sign, whether it's in creation, like tsunamis or earthquakes or things like that, or whether it's in the affairs of men, wars and invasions and bombings, that they would all be reminders for us to repent and rely on Jesus. And we pray that we would look back at 70 AD and the fulfillment of those prophecies and that those would give us confidence that all that he, Jesus has said about the future will come to be. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.